The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. So this morning we continue our, our discussion in James. Um, so we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 13, all the way through 5, 5, 6. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to open that. Uh, we'll also have it up on the screen. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such, and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which are kept back, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters had reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Tolander. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. I want, I want to open up our time uh, before we look at our text with a story. Uh, this story takes place in the winter of 1863, in the winter and then the spring of 1863. And the winter of 1863 was a really dark time for the Union troops in the American Civil War. Uh, it was a time in the very middle of the war when the outcome of the war was still very much in doubt. And the commander of the southern troops at that point was General Robert E. Lee, as you probably know. And, and he was the most famous and brilliant military mind and general in all American history, uh, even more so than George Washington. And at that point in the war, he'd won four consecutive victories against the Union troops. He was the most feared military figure in the entire conflict. He was a man of extraordinary brilliance. And that made the North very nervous, and understandably so. Their troops were in bad shape. They just lost four consecutive battles to General Lee. They were demoralized. Troops were deserting. Uh, they weren't being fed well. There were outbreaks of disease. And President Lincoln was starting to get very, very anxious back in Washington, D.C. At that point in the Northern Theater of the Civil War, the battle line between the Union and Confederate troops was the Rappahannock River, which flows through Virginia east to west. And the northern troops were dug in on the, the northern side of the river, as you might expect, and the southern troops were dug in along these hills on the southern side of the river. And, and for months during the winter of 1863, these two armies just sat and dug in and were stalemated and just sort of stared at each other. And when I say that they stared at each other, I mean that very literally, because the Rappahannock River is only about 150 feet wide at some of its widest points, so they could hear each other across the river. Each army could hear the other army talking. And you know, when the Union would send their band through the camp to try and rally the troops, the southern uh, troops would shout across the river and shout their favorite songs 
and try and get the Union Army, to the band to play, you know, Dixie or, or whatever. And they would trade with each other, and the Southerners would make these little boats, and they'd send tobacco across the river to the Union guys, and the Union guys would send coffee back across to the Southern troops. And this very weird sort of intimate thing that happened so often in, in that time in pre-modern warfare. But finally, this goes on long enough, and Lincoln decides he needs to do something. He's got to take action, and he needs to make a change. And so uh, and he, the reason that it's so imperative is because this bedraggled group of soldiers here on the north shore of the Rappahannock River in Virginia is the only thing standing between Robert E. Lee and Washington, D.C., where the Union capital is. And so Lincoln decides to replace the general in charge of these troops, and the man he brings in is a man by the name of Fighting Joe Hooker. Now, Joe Hooker is this tall, strong, very charismatic, lantern-jawed, broad-shoulder kind of general stereotype figure. And he was a military hero in the Mexican conflict. He was confident, and he was brilliant, and he was brash, and he was energetic and charismatic. So Lincoln decided Hooker is the man who could turn the situation around. And sure enough, when Hooker takes control of the Union troops, everything changes. The morale of the troops skyrockets. And he solves their desertion problem. And he promises them that he's going to pay them on time. And he promises them that he'll feed them properly. In fact, Hooker very famously stands up and he declares, my men will be fed before I'm fed. And he promises them that once every week they'll have fresh meat to eat. But the most important thing that Joe Hooker did when he took control of these troops is he sets up something called the Bureau of Military Intelligence. And this is very, very important because this is the precursor to modern military intelligence units. No one had ever done this before. No one had ever set up a specific unit whose sole responsibility was the collection and the analysis of military intelligence. And this will become a critical part of military operations for generations and generations to come all the way till today. And as it turns out, the Bureau of Military Intelligence was a huge success. So here's what Hooker does. He sets up a spy network among Lee's troops that was second to none. And he breaks Lee's codes. So he's reading Robert E. Lee's mail. And then he does something even more cunning, which is he realizes that Lee has broken the Union codes, and so he starts to feed Lee all of the false information that he can think of. He even goes so far as to find a physicist with a hot air balloon. This is 1863. A physicist with a hot air balloon, and he sends a soldier up in the balloon with a telescope to observe Lee from the air. So now he has aerial surveillance. And Hooker combines all of this information together, and his knowledge of Lee's army is such that one historian wrote that Joe Hooker knew more about Lee's army than Lee knew. That's how profound the asymmetry is in the information about this battle. And here's what fighting Joe Hooker finds out after putting all of this intelligence together. He has 131,000 troops. Lee has about 60,000. So Hooker has Lee outnumbered more than two to one. He knows where Lee's guns are. He knows what his fortifications look like. He knows where his cavalry is. And he has the complete picture. And using that complete picture, Joe Hooker devises what is considered by military strategists to be one of the most brilliant battlefield plans 
in recent military history. Here's what he does. He divides his army up into thirds, about 40,000 troops each. And he sends the first third of them east, and they cross the Rappahannock River at Fredericksburg, and they park themselves and march up and sit directly on Lee's right flank. The second group of 40,000 troops, he leaves exactly where they are, on that northern shore of the river, blocking Lee's access to Washington. And the third group, he comes up with this brilliant idea in the middle of the night, at 2 in the morning one night, they all wake up, and as quietly as 40,000 men can move, they march 14 miles west, they cross the river, and they come to a place called Chancellorsville, which is directly on Lee's left flank. So now Hooker has Lee surrounded on three sides in what's called a pincer movement. He's outnumbered Lee two to one. And Lee's scouts come back and report to the general that they're in big trouble. And it seems that they have no choice but to turn around and retreat back to the Confederate capital in Richmond. And Hooker writes to President Lincoln and he says, game over. We're on our way to the capital. I'll send you a letter from Richmond. Hope to hear from you soon. And he has every reason in the world to be that confident because he has Lee surrounded and outnumbered and he has spies in the camp and he's reading Lee's mail and he has aerial surveillance for crying out loud. And so that night, Hooker's men settle down in Chancellorsville and Hooker sets up a stage and he gathers all of his men around in front of him. And he stands up in front of them and, and he, he rallies them. And he says, you know, he talks about how their plan is perfect. And about how they're just going to rout Lee's army all the way back to Richmond. And he concludes by saying this. He says, God Almighty could not prevent me from victory tomorrow. That's called foreshadowing. All of his men stand up and they cheer. Now, Chancellorsville, where Hooker is set up with these men, is in a place in Virginia that at this time they called it the wilderness. And the reason it was called the wilderness is because back in colonial times, there was a foundry there in Chancellorsville, and they had cut down all of the, the old-growth forest and all of the big trees to feed the furnace in the foundry. And what had grown back in its place was this very dense, very thick underbrush. So even though Hooker has moved in and he's sitting right on Lee's left flank, he can't actually see exactly where Lee is. And so he starts to send scouts in to check out the situation, and they, they report back. And Hooker decides, very critically, not to attack right away. After all, an army is at its most vulnerable when it's retreating. And Lee has nowhere to go. He's surrounded on three sides. His only option is to go back to Richmond. And so Hooker decides, instead of launching the attack, we're going to hold off just a little bit. We'll wait for Lee to make the first move, because the prudent thing to do will be just to attack General Lee. Once he starts to retreat back to Richmond, we can come after him from behind, and we'll pursue them, and we will destroy Lee at our leisure. And so he decides not to attack immediately. The next morning, Hooker sends out his scouts to check on Lee to see if he's retreating yet. And over the course of the day, the reports keep coming back from these scouts that Lee is definitely up to something. His troops are packing up their stuff. They're getting the horses fed. And finally, a third scout comes back, and he reports, Lee is moving south. And Hooker turns to one of his most trusted aides, and he says, the game is in our hands. And then he turns to his troops, and he says, clean your weapons, feed your horses, 
and we're going to get a good night's sleep tonight, and tomorrow morning at first light, we are going to pursue Lee all the way back to Richmond. That same night, the night before Hooker is going to start moving his men to attack Lee's retreating army, he decides to throw a big party for his troops, and he says, uh, sorry, uh, they slaughter all the cattle. So remember I told you earlier he promised them that they would have fresh meat once a week? They slaughter all the cattle. This is meat day. And they strike up the band to get everybody sort of in the mood. And they begin to celebrate because in the morning, they're going to tear Lee's army limb from limb. And it's in the middle of this party when all the soldiers are eating dinner that Robert E. Lee's army comes barreling through that thick underbrush and takes Hooker by surprise. And Hooker's army that has Lee outnumbered two to one, who knew more about Lee's army than Lee knew, and who God Almighty could not prevent from victory, dropped their stakes in the dirt, and they abandoned their rifles, and they ran for their lives. And what followed was one of the bloodiest days in the American Civil War. Now, fighting Joe Hooker's fatal mistake his decision to wait an extra night to attack Robert E. Lee at Chancellorsville very nearly cost the Union the war. And how could he make such a disastrous mistake? With all of the information that he had and, and this brilliant plan that he had, he was in total control of the situation. How did he mess it up? Well, he was overconfident. Turns out he was not in control of the situation. It's easy for us to hear a story like that and be like, Phew idiot. Like, how could he be so stupid, right? And to judge Hooker very harshly, but all of us has done the exact same thing. I mean, not on so grand a scale with such severe consequences, but every one of us has planned the perfect vacation or the perfect meal or the perfect date or the perfect party, and we get all of the details in line, and we think our plan is perfect, and we have everything under control, only for something to go wrong and remind us that we aren't really in control at all. And it's this issue that James is addressing in our text this morning. Let's look together at chapter 4, verse 13. James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. Now, James's audience here, his readers, the men that he's addressing, they have a great plan. This plan would get an A+. Plus in any strategic planning class. Okay, they have a start date, today or tomorrow. They have an itinerary, they're gonna to go to such and such a town. They have a time frame, a measurable end date, we're gonna spend a year there. And they have a business plan, they're gonna go and make a profit. So why is James reprimanding them? It's very obviously what's going on here. He says, come now, you who say. He's calling them out, why is he doing that? I mean, is it wrong to plan to go somewhere? Is it wrong to plan to make money? No. In fact, there are all sorts of other places in Scripture where we're actually we're commanded to plan. Strategic planning is prudent, and that's commended in Scripture over and over again. So what's really the problem with what's going on? Why is James so upset? Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Now, it's easy to misinterpret what James is getting at here. It would be easy if we were looking at this passage out of context 
to read this and think that James's point is, your plans are foolish, and the reason that they're foolish is because you don't even know if you're going to wake up tomorrow morning. Now, it's true that life is short, and it's true that in the grand scope of eternity that our time on earth is very, 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 very short and very small. And that's why the writer of Psalm 90 prayed that God would teach us to number our days, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. It's a good thing to acknowledge the brevity of life, but James is not primarily trying to make a point here about how short life is. James is making a point about humility. And he says to his readers, look, look, look. I know you think you're in total control. I know you think your plan is perfect. I know that you're self-reliant. But come on. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone what's going to happen over the course of a year of doing business in that town. So don't get a big head and don't get too big for your britches, right? He's making a point about humility. So the problem isn't their plan. Look at the next verse, verse 15. James says, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and such boasting is evil. So the problem isn't their plan. The problem is their perspective. The problem isn't their plan. The problem is their perspective. They don't have a true view of God. They have a delusional view of what's going on. And because they don't have a true view of God, they're not acknowledging God in their planning. That's why James says twice, you know, come now you who say, instead you ought to say. Their acknowledgement indicates that they have a right perspective inwardly. So James's prescription here isn't that they shouldn't plan. It's not that they shouldn't go and do business in that town. Uh, he's not chastising them for having a strategy to make money. He's chastising them because they are not recognizing inwardly and nor are they acknowledging outwardly that their life is in God's hands and that their success or failure when they go to do business in that town is also in God's hands. It makes a difference how we think and how we talk about these things in our lives. Why? Why does that matter? It matters because God did not create us just to go places and do things with our bodies. God created us and made us to have certain attitudes and convictions and verbal descriptions and acknowledgement that reflect the truth, a true view of life and of God. So God means for the truth about himself to, and about life to be known and felt and spoken as a part of our going and doing and as part of our reason for being. So you weren't created just to go to Dallas and do business, right? You were created to go to Dallas with thoughts and attitudes and words that reflect a right view of life and a right view of God in front of a watching world. See, here's what James knows, and here's what we have to get in our heads and hearts this morning, and this is so powerful. It has so many implications for every area of life, especially parenting. So parents in the room, this is where I need you to click back in uh, and re-engage here. Here's the big idea principle this morning. The big idea principle is that right choices 
come from right perspective. Right choices come from right perspective. So you, know, you want to talk about practical faith? You want to know whether you, your faith is practical, whether you have practical faith or not? Practical faith is happening when we live our lives in such a way that we demonstrate to others by our thoughts and our words and our actions that God is the one who's in control of my life and not me. That God is calling the shots and not me. That it's his plan and not mine. And all of that starts with perspective. And it, then it makes itself evident in right choices. See, James knows that if these businessmen have the right perspective, then it will affect the way that they plan, and it will affect the way that they do business in that town, and then it will affect the way that they respond. And this is maybe most important. It will affect the way that they respond to the outcome of that plan, whether good or bad. So James says, look, here's the right perspective. God is in control of your life. He's in control of everything. And so if the Lord wills, we will live. And if the Lord doesn't, then we won't. And if the Lord wills, then we'll do this thing or that thing. And if he doesn't, then we won't. And he ends this section of the letter with a very serious statement. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, Whoever knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, for him it is sin. This is a bookend verse to an idea that James introduced all the way back in chapter 1. If you remember back that far, several weeks now in the series, where James wrote in verse 22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What does it mean if you've deceived yourself? It means you have the wrong perspective, and right choices come from right perspective. So if I'm making wrong choices in my life, it indicates that something is miscalibrated in my perspective. It indicates that there's something that I'm not understanding or, or something that I'm not seeing clearly. So when I disobey God, either by doing the wrong thing or by neglecting to do the right thing that I know I'm supposed to do, I can trace the root of that disobedience all the way back to a flaw in my perspective. And sin is the way that we go about trying to manage our environment and meet our needs in illegitimate ways rather than trusting God. So here's an example. Let's say that I make a big mistake at work and I cost the company a bunch of money and I have just really stepped in it and I'm, I'm going to be in hot water with my boss for sure. There's going to be consequences. I could lose standing with my boss. I could lose standing in the company and be demoted. My reputation could take a hit. My coworkers might not think very highly of me. Worst case scenario, I get fired. I lose my job. So Instead of being honest about what happened, I'm going to try and cover it up, or maybe I'm going to lie about it, or maybe I'm going to try and redirect the blame towards somebody else so that I can avoid the consequences. That's me trying to manage my environment rather than trusting God with it. That's a wrong choice coming from a wrong perspective. Here's how that scenario plays out with the right perspective. A right perspective would yield this response. At the end of my life, which could come at any moment. I will have to answer to God. 
for the way that I conducted myself, for the decisions that I made, and for the way that I represented him to a watching world. And so even though it might cost me my reputation, or it might cost me my standing in the company, or it might cost me my job, I'm going to be honest about what happened. I'm just going to tell the truth, and then I'm going to entrust myself to the one who judges justly, and I'm going to leave the results to him. And even if my boss and my coworkers don't appreciate my honesty, even if I end up with egg on my face, even if I get fired, I know that God will reward me for acting with integrity, either in this life or the next. That's a right choice coming from right perspective. Here's why it's so important for us to be people who have this right perspective and a true view of God and a true view of life. It's because the world is full of people who think they're in control. The world is full of people who do not have a true view of God and who do not have a true view of life. And so when good things happen, they say, I did it. I planned that. I made that happen. It was all me. Look at how great I am. And James says, that's evil. That's putting myself in a place that God is supposed to occupy. But God calls us as people who claim Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord to be people who are marked by a radically different perspective. It's the perspective that acknowledges God as being in control. So when the plan succeeds and things are good, I get to give the glory and the credit to God. So it's not look at me and look what I did and can you believe it and aren't I great. It's look what God did. Look at how good he is. Look at how wonderful he is. Look at how gracious he is. Look at the way that he's blessed me. That sends a profound message when we give God the credit in front of a watching world. It sends a very powerful message to our friends and our family and our neighbors who don't know Christ. But you know it sends even more powerful of a message is when things don't go the way that we planned. And the plan isn't a success. And the outcome isn't good. And I don't get the job. Or I get laid off. Or the business fails. Or when the diagnosis comes back and it's not good. Or when the phone rings and it's the worst possible kind of news. And when everything takes a turn for the worse, and I find myself in the midst of the most crushing disappointment or the deepest possible pain, and I get to say in front of a watching world, I'm disappointed, I'm confused, I'm hurting. But even though things are bad, I know that God is in control of my life. And I know that even though my dream died, nothing of God's purposes died. He is still good. He still loves me. He still knows what is best. And so even though I'm disappointed and even though my heart is breaking and even though it feels like my life is falling apart and that everything is spinning out of control, I choose to trust him. I choose to trust that he's with me and that he is for me and that nothing can stop him from accomplishing his purpose in my life. And whatever that purpose is, even though I can't see it right now, 
my circumstances seem hopeless and I don't understand, I'm going to trust him until I do understand because I know that whatever happens, it will be for my good and it will be for his glory. And listen, when our family and our friends and our neighbors who don't know Christ see us and hear us respond that way, they will know that God really is what is most important and ultimately valuable in our life. They will know that God really is the highest authority in our life. And it will give credibility to our message when we share our faith with them. And when we tell them, you need to give your life to him. You need to trust him. He wants to forgive your sin, and he wants to make you a new creation. He wants to bring you into the kind of life that's filled with the meaning and significance and purpose like you've never, ever known. And even though it might cost you everything you have to follow him, he's worth it. And that he's so much better than anything else in this world. But we'll never respond that way in those dark times when everything goes wrong. We will never respond that way in truth and in integrity unless we've cultivated now in the good times the perspective that God is the one who is ultimately in control of every aspect of our lives. Let's pray together and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, it's so easy to lose sight of the truth. It's so easy to be distracted and for our perspective to shift from the things that are eternal to the things that are temporary. It's easy for us to forget our place. It's easy for us to try and occupy a space in our lives and in the lives of others that really only you can occupy. We want to be people whose lives are marked by a radical commitment and devotion to obedience to you. So we ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we lose perspective. Forgive us for the ways that we try and occupy that space that only you can occupy. And would you lead us with your Holy Spirit into lives marked by a true view of you, a true view of life that makes itself evident in right choices and right action. We know you're faithful to do it. We thank you for your grace and blessings to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.